Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good morning, fellows. I have the pleasure of spending a few minutes with an old friend, D. Smith, or D. Maurice. D is, D is fine. Perfect. Friends, we're all friends. Yeah. Executive director of the NFLPA, CEO of Players Inc., NFL Players Inc. Got it. And just to give our listeners some context, what's the difference between the NFLPA and Players Inc.? Sure. Because I confess, I'd never heard of Players Inc. Sure. NFLPA is the union. Uh, we represent the all 2,300 players okay. in the National Football League, wages, hours, working conditions like a traditional union. We have a wholly owned subsidiary called Players Inc. that's existed now for 35 years. We do all of the licensing and marketing for the group of the NFL players. So we generate, last year we generated approximately 310 million. And as such, we are the only union in the world that is entirely self-sufficient. Wow. We take a portion of that 300 million in revenue. It pays for the operation of the entire union we use a smaller portion to, to cover all of the operation costs for Players, Inc. And then every NFL player in the league gets a check. This year, it'll be about $35,000 as a royalty. So we're a complete pass-through. We don't take, we don't end up with any profit. But as a result, it allows us to run this union like a corporation. So the union is not beholden to any entity party, and it sounds like it's self-sufficient. Correct. So we take all of the dues money, and that dues money just goes into a war chest for <clears throat> in case we are locked out, or if the players want to call a strike. Well, we certainly, use that money there wouldn't for that. be a lockout. That, that would never happen. Yeah, yeah, Why yeah. would that ever? Just there would never be an antitrust violation. Exactly. Why would there? Of course, that would be that. Two separate jobs. I spend obviously most of my time on on the union stuff, but uh, that ability to be self-sufficient means that in a in an ecosystem where we are in a forced relationship with the National Football League. I mean, forced. When we have dust-ups or, or when we believe that we have to go to war to protect our players' rights, it would be a much different construct if we always had to sit back and make some sort of economic yeah. positive, negative evaluation of how much of a player's dues money are we going to spend on this. Yeah. The reason, and again, you open up a sports law textbook but 75% of those major cases are NFL cases. And that's why. Huh. Because we've always taken the view historically that if we are going to go to war to protect our players, we finish the war. Yeah, you can lose, draw. So you all could afford to litigate. And Correct. Yeah, got it. I love it. All right, I'm going to start in the way that we often do with these interviews with some softball questions. Sure. And then we'll change the pace down the road. Let's go into the background of D. Smith, right? Because when you and I met, it was probably 87, 88. Yeah. Different generation. Dif different generation. Yeah. yeah. Back in the good old days. That's what we like to say. Back in the good old days. Yeah. Probably, yeah, 87. Yeah. So you were born and raised in Maryland. Is that right? Born and raised in D.C. Okay. Moved to Maryland when I was still young, five, six. Siblings? Sister, who is two years younger than me. Both of my parents are still with us. My okay. dad is 93. Yeah, it's nice, nice. 93, and my mother is 89. Let's hope that longevity is hereditary. Right? I, 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> so, grew up in a working class household. Is that fair to say? Very much. My father worked for the Department of Commerce and then Department of Transportation. My mother was a 
nurse, started off in the segregated Freedman's Hospital, and then moved over to Howard University Hospital, and then finished her career at the National Institutes of Health in in Bethesda. Two government government workers and a great household. What was a common household value? Mm. What was the spine of your household values, if you will? Probably two big ones. Family first and hard work. Yeah. I think I think what came, at least for me, with both of us, we both ended up, I consider my developmental years as a lawyer being public service. Mm. Both of them worked for the government. And I think that idea that this was an entity that that you went to work, but it was also there for the common good. And that was never lost on us. And happy households. We were probably lower middle class. Yep, yep. Grew up in Glen Arden which was a great neighborhood for African-Americans. So there was never a thing we wanted for, never a thing that we ever thought we were missing out on. The beauty of both of your parents, for the most part, not traveling like probably you and I traveled in our professional life. Dinner was always at six o'clock. I like to tell my kids who live very different lives than the life that I lived, (laughs) that we didn't have much, but we didn't know what we didn't have. A hundred percent. And it was bliss. I know. It just made you so appreciative for whatever there was. There was no FOMO. We weren't missing out on anything. I I felt we had everything. And a nice community. Grew up with the same age kids when Glen Arden started to develop. It was the first place that a lot of people of color could own a home or buy a home outside of the district. That sort of Prince George's County piece grew exponentially. So on almost our entire block, almost everyone had their first kid was my age. Their second kid was my sister's age. All the families were about the same age. So were your parents of the generation that was essentially first owner? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And that trans-migratory pattern from Jim Crow's house. My mother grew up in Savannah. I'm sorry, grew up in Atlanta and moved north. My father grew up in Dry Fork, Virginia, near Danville. And after he got back from the Marine Corps, moved north. So that whole great migration of the first people to move into cities, own homes, that was was kind of the first for everybody. Yeah. Let's talk about another migration. This one of you to Cedarville Baptist. Yeah. Seems like an unlikely stop unless you're on your way to the ministry. That was the plan. I'm not look sh- at you now. Yeah, look at me now. Draw your You're own still conclusion. preaching, right? Yeah. yeah. Different pulpit, different church. Yeah. It's on Sunday, though. Right. Yeah, that was the plan. I'm not sure it was entirely my plan, as we would say. I come from a long line of Baptist preachers. My grandfather, his father, all of my uncles, everyone in the family, except my uncle James. My dad was one of 14 kids. Yeah. Talk about competition at dinner time. Man, rough. Rough. My dad tells a story about how the Marine Corps saved his life, uh, the ability to eat as much as he wanted. So, yeah, my dad had a long conversation. My dad decided that uh, one of two things was going to happen. Cedarville was a Baptist college, a pre-seminary college, and that's what I felt might happen. I went to Riverdale Baptist (laughs) in, in Largo. The only other option on the table at the time was my father was absolutely convinced that I should take a NROTC scholarship and go to the Marine Corps. Let's just say that wasn't high on my list yeah. of, of options. Yeah, yeah. He, I could see you in the core. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
as I remember telling my dad, I, the Marine Corps doesn't get sarcasm. Mm-hmm. And my, I think my dad said, neither do I. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it, imagine that. It, end of conversation. Yeah. So I ended up going to Cedarville College, which was an interesting place to go to school. I met a lot of good people there in Ohio. A culture change for growing up yeah. on the East Coast near D.C. Not all great times there, but formative. Did you play sports? Ran track there. And it was fun, but I also, when it was time to go, it was time to go. And so you left Cedarville, transferred to Maryland, where you studied philosophy. Studied philosophy for a year, which intellectually for me was one of those, I had a great philosophy professor at Cedarville and I would have left school had it not been for him, but took a year off, studied philosophy at Maryland. Hold Um, on, let's pause. I would have left school had it not been for him. So Mm -hmm. I didn't detect that the transition to Cedarville, Cedarville was challenging enough that you were actually contemplating packing it up. Oh yeah. Oh, I was done. I Was that because you had, you recognized that you weren't going to pursue the ministry or just the dynamic of life at Cedarville? It was just a racially tough place to go to school. Oh, okay. Riverdale wasn't, Riverdale wa- was, I don't know, I maybe 10 people in my graduating class at Riverdale that that were of color and permit 200, 300 kids. But the fact that Riverdale was in Prince George's County and I was home softened the edges, I would say. Ohio, even though it was a Baptist college, was not the Baptist college of (laughs) of my family, not even the Baptist of my high school. It was a I found it to be a very tough place. I remember running for, I was the first black student class president and the notes that I got in my mailbox reminded me that I was the first, the first black student to run for class president. And I was the first African-American to become student body president. And the people in my mailbox like to remind me of that every day. That's interesting because notwithstanding the challenges of race at Cedarville, you managed to be a couple firsts. A couple of firsts. It's yeah. odd that a place that sounds as conservative as Cedarville would allow you to yeah. enjoy the trajectory that you did. Well, and again, going back to you and I've been friends for a long time. Yeah. The gift of growing up in a household like we grew up, a lot of expectations yeah. on both of us. But it wasn't like we felt we were exceptional. This is just what we did. So going to Cedarville and running for class president, I didn't think I was breaking any barriers. That wasn't the, I was just, no, I just thought I would run for student class president. Okay, why not? As as Russell Wilson's dad, Harrison said to him, why not you? Why not you? Yeah. And it's not until you have that mentality of why not you, that you get hit in the face with, it shouldn't be you. And that is shocking. And four years of Cedarville was shocking. And I I had a tough injury my first year. I tore my knee all to pieces, meniscus, ACL. I was in a hard cast for four months. Coming back from that just set me on a path of, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to get back. I'm going to run track. And everything else just became that athlete's mentality of push through. But I met a great professor there named Gary Persis. I finally realized by my third year that I just couldn't, there was no need to keep doing it anymore. He was a philosophy professor and he really was the person that only personally, but intellectually found that piece of me that could reconcile my faith, reconcile what was going on at Cedarville socially and politically. So I stayed. 
And so I took a year off, studied philosophy at Maryland. That was one of those, again, journeys of figuring it all out. And then on to the best law school on the planet. Let's skip over UVA because everyone listening has done law school, but not everyone has enjoyed the diversity of experience that you have. So you come out of Virginia, you come back to D.C. to a white shoe firm. Yes. Typical trajectory for a guy or woman coming out of UVA. Yeah. But then something drew you to public service and you alluded to it a moment ago, right? Yeah. My last two years of of Cedarville and then that year at Maryland, that year at Maryland, that was the year Lynn Bias died. I remember that. That was my year, right? And that's when crack got real. That's when crack got real. And then there were a couple of people that that came from my that my community that I okay I can say idolized right you're, you're young Alex Williams became the state's attorney and then became a federal district court judge and and I also remember this thing of I either want to go to the public defender service or I want to go to the U.S. Attorney's office. I could see you doing defense work and it was literally that close. Yeah. I interviewed down in Virginia for the public defender service. I interviewed got accepted to the U.S. Attorney's office down there. I was dating my wife at the time, who was from Richmond. You made the decision, though, to leave the trappings of private practice. I had decided I was headed to another firm, and Earl came down for an interview, and I got a note in my, remember those old mailboxes we had? Vividly. And he had talked to, I don't know if you remember, Professor John Lowe. I do. I remember Professor Lowe. John was my trial ad professor, and I had already decided I was headed to another firm, and Somehow John knew Earl probably through ACTL Wow! and he sent a note to Earl or Earl sent a note to him looking for budding trial lawyer types. And that's how it happens. Hey, I got a guy for you. Yeah, literally. I love that story. Literally. I love that. So yeah, met Earl and went to Schwab Donenfeld. I was there for almost two years and then U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. All right. So what was the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. like mm. in the early 90s? What was what were the streets of D.C. and what was it like to prosecute in D.C.? The best part of that job, and I guess it would have been the same for Public Defender Service, was the ability, and again, I'm not telling you, it feels like we're kindred spirits, right. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, the ability to work in public service in the town that you grew up in was just a special, and I worked with a lot of other great people but it never felt, sounds like a bad word, it never felt I was some sort of landed gentry coming into a city to do work. This was my home, and this is where I was born. You got a vested interest. You don't spend a lot of time in Superior Court without running into police officers who you grew up with, and sometimes you ran into the 1990s, where it was a very rough time in, in the district that crack had taken a hold, taken a hold of the city. It played out in massive increases of violent crime and nonviolent crime. Just decimated the African American. Carjackings went through the roof. It decimated the community. Look, the crime was primarily black on black crime. The US attorney then was was Jay Stevens yeah. who hired me, I guess during the I guess it was Bush one was probably mm-hmm. that Correct. era. So I'm war on drugs. We became cogs in the wheel in the war on drugs. And I did my job. And there were plenty of times of moral questioning of... I've wrestled with this so many times. Do you ever look back? Are there any cases you would do over? Any 
positions, any strategies yeah. you would do differently at 58 looking back yeah, at work of a 28-year-old? Yeah, I would. Uh, there, there's tons. One of the benefits of being in AUSA in, in D.C. is that federal court, superior court line. If you were a local prosecutor, you were still a federal prosecutor, but you were prosecuting all local crimes in superior court. You go across the street, you're prosecuting cases in, in, in federal court. D.C. had mandatory minimums as both a federal law and a, and a local law. And I, I don't know when it happened. There came a time when you know, I made express decisions of using my prosecutorial discretion to charge people with attempted possession with intent to distribute or attempted distribution because the attempts got you away from yeah, to avoid the draconian penalties. And by the way, that I'll be the first person because the people out there who <laughs> knew me when I was prosecuting cases, could, especially when it came to violent crises, violent crime cases, I could go hard. I mean, I, yeah, I and, and if you were trying to incentivize people to cooperate, those were different charging decisions. So it was tough. The decisions that, that I made, I would say midway through, because you have to get to a point in your career where you have more discretion. Sure. And you can do things that fly a little bit under the radar, just a bit. Uh, and thankfully I had, but I also had great bosses. The, my boss in the violent crime section was a former police officer named Cliff Keenan, who had been sergeant of the police force for, I think, 15 years, went to law school at night and then became an AUSA. He became that moral compass yeah. for all of us in our section. And he knew the streets and also understood that locking up a first time offender for a five year mandatory minimum at the time for something less than a dime bag of crack made no sense. In his philosophy, he was one of the first people who adopted this idea of community policing. So he created a community prosecution section inside the U.S. Attorney's Office. And instead of just being a homicide prosecutor or just being a violent crime prosecutor or just being a drug prosecutor or general crimes prosecutor, my area was starting near Union Station, all the way down to Heckinger Mall, all the way across to RFK Stadium, and then back, that triangle. And you were responsible for all of the crimes, literally crime prevention. So for our listeners, you would have been the community prosecutor for that area yeah. you just outlined. And the idea isn't prosecution, it's lower crime. Right. Yeah. And so you leveraged everything against each other to decrease violent crime, to decrease everything. And you know what? It actually worked. I think, especially now, as we see it swinging back. Yep. And D.C. right now reminds me a lot of the 90s. We've gotten away from community prosecution. This idea was, let's just prosecute cases, seriatim. And, but without sort of this governing philosophy of, okay, the carjackings and the car thefts and the burglaries are inextricably tied yep. to, to those who are typically hooked yep. on drugs. The violent crime is typically inextricably tied to the people who are dealing if you don't approach those things in a holistic sense, you're just running a mill of prosecution. I recall one of the biggest challenges that I faced, particularly when I was in office, was striking a healthy balance between yep. prevention and suppression. Yep. And then making the public understand that the two parts were equally important, but that the yield was probably higher on the prevention side. Much higher. 
it's tough to convey that to people and not lose their confidence in your ability to quote fight crime. I'm convinced that the drug courts that we set up had the largest impact on crime mm -hmm. reduction mm -hmm. and suppression. Mm -hmm. Because again, you could have a person who was addicted instead of just housing, warehousing them in a mandatory minimum prosecution, sometimes those people needed the incentives. Yeah. And so they went through drug treatment in order to not face jail time. And a clean person is a far better person in our community than an incarcerated person. Absolutely. What one one's an asset to the community and the other's a liability. They're all coming back. Yeah. And so this this idea of getting rid of the drug courts and what we see in in sort of surface level pop conversation about crime where they create these two false choices, yeah. soft on crime, hard on crime. Yeah. That's a false choice. I looked at drug courts and community prosecution as being really hard on crime. Right. But yeah. I do think that the one mistake that, that we've made over time is allowing other people to define the conversation. And create false binaries, if you will. Look, nothing is harder on crime than weaning a person off of their dependency. That's hard on crime. I was always hard on crime because if I took a junkie away from a dealer or I flipped a dealer on other dealers, both of those are really hard on crime. It's just you're not happy because I'm sending both of them away for a mandatory minimum. That I would look at that, obviously, as soft on crime. Yeah. And letting somebody define those things as being hard or soft, we should have just called it, let's be hard on crime. So it sounds like it's, it's an, I think you alluded to this, that they were more concerned, some seemed more concerned with the image of the league than the well-being of... Yeah, and those are both moral choices. You've just decided to cite a moral reference <laughs> in the footnotes for one side of the ledger and not in the other. I find the most interesting law school undergrad issues to be this this moral, legal, ethical battleground in sports where we are far more comfortable talking about steroids and performance enhancing drugs. And no one wants to talk about players at the combine who are forced to waive their medical rights or why do we draw a distinction between our emphasis on cheating and in, in, in these sports and we don't focus on freedom of expression so when it comes to those issues whether it's kneeling marijuana there is a group of owners who that is just a moral hard line for them so think of what we've done. When I came into the league in 2009, hard penalties for marijuana use, testing That's for right. marijuana all the way through the season, yada, yada, yada. Could result we, in expulsion, right? Oh, absolutely. To now, we have a system that I would consider, it was one where for the league side, it was a check the box for those owners who had marijuana as their moral high ground. But we have a system now where we test for marijuana once during training camp. 
we know when the test is. We all tell our players when the test is. And after that, there's no testing for marijuana. Okay. So for the small cadre of owners who needed to check the box that they weren't legalizing marijuana in the league, that's where we ended up. And that's what we needed to do. That's where we needed to end up in order to get the collective bargaining agreement passed. Now, I consider that, I consider that literally to be just moral smoke and mirrors. How about among your players? Did you yeah. see the same dynamic play out, whether it's smoke and mirrors, moral weightlessness, moral conundrum? Not really. And this may be unpopular, but again, when I came in 2009, for the most part, there really wasn't any regulation on team doctors for the massive amounts of painkillers that they were giving our players. I mean, it just... 30 seconds. There was no credentialing of doctors. What does that mean? No, I know what credentialing means, but what do you mean in this context? There was if no you were a doctor and you decided that you wanted to be a team doctor for Team X, no one from the union side ever checked your credentials. No one made sure that you had the qualifications to be a team doctor. So you literally meant no credentialing. I will give you the best example. When I took the job in 2009, the head of the league's concussion committee that they called the mild traumatic brain committee, mild, yeah. was a rheumatologist. Wow. He was the head. For me, and again, you just wallow in this philosophical, ethical world. How in the world can we have doctors over-prescribing painkillers and there's no check on that. And on the other side of the ledger, the owners were insisting that you test for marijuana throughout the year. I would much rather trade yeah. marijuana yeah. for painkillers. And if a player was going to self-medicate on a Monday or post-game, and there was a choice between a bottle of vodka or marijuana... I haven't met a doctor who wouldn't say marijuana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have almost every system in, in sports, I would argue, has a illogical moral construct that when analyzed logically makes no sense. I want to go to something earlier in the chronology because you clearly are no shrinking violence. But you understand human relationships. Yep. You got good common sense. You come into your position in 2009. The owners didn't know D. Smith because right. they didn't practice here with you right. in the district. So here comes this guy. When did you get when did you get your sea legs under you or enough confidence to begin to project in the way that you seem very comfortable now? Yeah. And as you answer that question. Yeah. Tell me how the owners reacted to you back in 09. I can, yeah, I'll do the first. I'll <laughs> do the second one first. Not well. Okay. You know, as far as sea legs, man, that was out the gate. Okay. We're, we're trial lawyers. You had by your training. swag. Right? We're trial lawyers by training. And there is never a courtroom too big. And frankly, for all of us trial lawyers, it's really not an ego too big either. But the reality of our practice is at times we are asked to represent clients 
at a very high level. And I think the one thing that that makes us different as a group of trout lawyers is we are not, we're not so much toxic tort lawyers or antitrust lawyers or whatever. A trial lawyer is, a, is for the most part, a person who there is something that is headed to a tribunal and it is going to be a war. And we are hiring you because of your expertise at perpetuating war in that tribunal. That's what we're hired for. And when it to comes to fight. the subject matter, yeah. And then when it comes to the subject matter, what do we do? Learn. We learn the subject matter. That's right. And coming into the job, the way that I interviewed for the job, because I wasn't really interested in the job, when they called me about this job, I told them, look, I, I don't really know a lot about football or sport. I'm a troller. But I do know that this is a group of people headed towards a war and the, the lockout. And the owners had already declared in 2008 that they were going to lock the players out. They wanted the players to give 20 back, 20% of their salary back, give up their pensions, and play 18 games for free. And that was, and by the way, God bless them, because if they hadn't been so explicit about their plan to wage war, two things would not have happened. A, I would have never been interested in the job because we're only interested in wars. And second, because they were so blatant about what they predicted or what they intended to happen in 2011 it forced me to understand and learn the league as a trial lawyer. And so out of the gate, the things that that struck me and what I told the executive committee, look, we are an unregulated industry. We'll do $20 billion this year. There are no 10Ks. There are no 10Qs. There's no public board of directors. There's no SEC oversight. There's no Department of Justice oversight. There's no state agency that oversees the NFL. There's no state agency that oversees a team. So we are, look, if it's a $20 billion a year entity, you are a literally a $100 billion corporation that has no oversight. Stunning. So until you kind of get your head around that, and then the second thing you learn is the players didn't get free agency until 1993. We started suing the league in 1971 to 1993, 20 years of litigation over antitrust violations. So my takeaway from that was, wait a minute. I mean, you and I both know the antitrust laws haven't really changed since the early 1900s. I mean, you either violate the antitrust laws or you don't. How in the world can we have 20 years of litigation over this? And when you dive into it, you realize that the players were winning all of the federal court cases. The league just ignored them. Who ignores? Because there was no oversight. Fascinating. So the league would say no, and then you'd have to file another suit. And then the league would say no, and you have to file another suit. Quickly, for a lawyer, you realize, okay, then that means that you don't really have it. You don't really have an answer going to court. You really don't have an answer going to the court of public opinion. The average player plays for three and a half years. And we're a union that's had three failed strikes. (laughs) So for a trial lawyer, when you start thinking of this ecosystem, my thing was, okay, then the only place where we can maybe play is Congress gave them antitrust laws, exemptions to those laws. I'll never forget sitting down with Tom Boggs after 
I had left and said, Tom, we need to have a really aggressive legislative strategy. And we decided that the first thing we needed to do was have a, a congressional hearing over concussions. And yes, it was important to have a hearing on concussions, but strategically, it was important to have Congress for the first time. That was your doing? Yeah, I love it. And then, you know, of course, we sued him for antitrust violations, and we went very aggressive in the court of public opinion. We filed briefs and with several state attorneys general, right, to, to look at various issues that were going on. Why? Because, so to answer your question, how did the owners take it? Not well. It sounds like you just brought an extraordinary amount of scrutiny and visibility to an industry that had otherwise been relatively contained and insular. Yeah. Aside from yeah. Sunday yeah. projections. That, and then the last thing we did was, I had done a lot of insurance coverage work at Latham and we came up with a crazy idea of buying the first ever lockout insurance, which I would explain to you, but Thank I'd you. have to kill you. All right, all right. Um, Listeners, you should see my face. It's a WTF moment. Lockout insurance. We bought lockout insurance because, again, in this ecosystem, the owners were, they had a $4 billion war chest, which is a completely other story, that a $4 billion war chest that they announced. I've never met an enemy that comes out and says, not only do we have more bullets than you, yeah. but we have more guns, more everything than you. Yeah, yeah. Again, bless their hearts. But... The only way for me to think about that was if they have $4 billion in, a, in the bank to not play football for a year. Remember, we had just come out of the 2008 meltdown. And I knew that they had, again, you just start thinking about it from a war game standpoint. If they wanted to shut down the season for a year, they still have to service the debt on their stadium. And if there's no football... How were they going to service the debt on their stadiums? So they came out publicly and said that they had a $4 billion war chest. Okay. If you have $4 billion, no bank was lending you $4 billion in, in, in 2008, 2009. And we realized that, okay, they probably got this money from the TV networks. From a trial lawyer standpoint, we sued the league over getting the $4 billion from the TV networks because we were third-party beneficiaries of that money. And if they were getting $4 billion from the networks for free, that means the networks were probably underpaying the value of the TV contracts. And as a third-party beneficiary, the league had a fiduciary duty to us to maximize that deal. If they didn't maximize it, that's a violation. Judge Doty in Minnesota agreed with us. So he froze their $4 billion in their war chest. And then the flip side of it was we went into the European market and the most complicated thing I've ever, we've ever done. We convinced a number of insurers to insure against the lockout. So we paid a large premium. It's public, I can tell you. We, we spent about $48 million and bought an insurance policy that would have paid the players $850 million in the event of a lost season. So you freeze there for a billion. You now have... 850 million by the time when we only had about 200 million dollars in the bank and then we kept the whole lockout insurance thing secret until the end that was a play yeah. and what was the reaction among the owners not well <laughs> when they recognized that the players had a safety net but yeah. with that meeting with robert Kraft and jerry jones and jerry richardson and roger 
that meeting was a meeting in New York where the, we kept this thing secret for so long. How'd you keep it under wraps? I will tell you, that executive committee from 2009 to 2011, I've worked with a lot of presidents and I've worked with a lot of executive committees over the last 15 years. That group contained really some of the most, ex it was probably the most exceptional group of people that I've ever worked with. So discipline, character. Kevin Mawai, yeah. who's our Hall of Famer, was the president. Drew Brees yeah. was a literally a young person on yeah, the executive yeah, yeah. committee. Dominique Foxworth, Brian Dawkins, Jeff Saturday, Kevin Carter, Mark Bruner, Keenan McCardle. Those guys, and I think the psychological part of it, all of those people woke up one day and that guy, Gene Upshaw, was dead. A guy who had run this union for longer than many of them had been alive was dead. And they woke up one morning and they were tasked with finding the next executive director, knowing that the war of all wars was coming. So they knew it was existential. They were, they knew it was existential. And as a result, they were old beyond their years. How about this idea, though? And maybe this is just the naivete of a consumer viewer. I assume that there's a degree of loyalty among and between players and owners. And were you ever concerned yeah. that someone as young as Drew Brees or someone else who might got who might have gotten word of it out of loyalty to the team or owner yeah. would breach the confidence? They had already gone through that. And they had gone through huh. that with Troy Vincent. So they'd been burned before. They got burned. <laughs> they had all gone through that. Huh. And then he became, after Gene's death, Troy became a candidate. I ran against Troy Vincent in 2009. So the, the board and the executive com committee literally had to make decisions based on exactly what you raised. And again, going back to how exceptional, I don't know if anybody comes, goes through that and comes out yeah. the same. So going to the insurance policy, once they decided that they were going to authorize us to, to place that insurance. And then I said to them, look, the insurance, the insurance isn't a silver bullet for us. It will give us 800 and some thousand dollars to get through the season. But our player cost at the time salaries was in excess of 4 billion. Even if we spent every dime, of this, they're gonna get us at the end. The only way that the insurance policy really helps us is if we keep it secret, we allow the league to come up with their game strategy, thinking that the players would fold in week three, week four, week five. And that's probably what they were also telling their banks. We'll be able to we'll be able to cover our service debt. We'll be back to work by week five, week six at the latest. Introducing that insurance policy meant no, we're going to go all year. I look back on it now and say it's fun, but I'm sure I have an ulcer that'll never go away. Yeah. I used to have hair. I understand. Hair I've read that it's been part of your mission during your tenure here at the Players Association to invest the athletes, the players, in a greater participation, yep. ownership, awareness of yep. all things. All of it. How does that go over? Because on some level, yeah. I imagine... Players are a bit like voters. They want you to tell them how you're going to solve the thing. They want you to tell them that the thing is solved. They don't want you to tell them how, how you get there. There's a lot of that. 
And I think the toughest part of this job is that part of the job. It was easier. <laughs> I would never say that the lockout was easy. We told players that they were going to be locked out. Okay. When a lot of people told them that who would shut down the league, they would. So coming out of that, there was a greater amount of reality that had set in. And then we go through, at least for the most part, no major labor fights because we have a 10-year collective bargaining agreement. But the way that I always reminded players was when things like Deflategate happened or the Anthem or Bounty or Ray Rice yeah. or any number of, or Colin Kaepernick, yeah, yeah, yeah. we use those fights with the league to remind our players that but for your collective action, this is a group of people who would treat you in a rather indentured way. Intentional words. You know, I went close, but... I take it the room falls silent when you make that statement. The room falls silent. I would say it breaks into thirds, like any other group. One third of the people are insulted by that. One third of the people are indifferent. And one third of the people are emboldened. And that's just the nature of, yeah. of this beast. There are some people who are just happy to play football. Yeah. And, and to your point about the electorate, just tell me how we solve the problem. Yeah. The toughest, the ultimate toughest thing in this job is the strength of a labor union and the power of a labor union, for the most part, comes down to the willingness of the workers to deny management their talent in order to get what they want. And for all sorts of reasons that the arguments can either be neutral or the arguments can be an excuse. Our players play for three and a half years. So is an agent telling a player to strike for a year? Probably not. Do players acknowledge that there is a lifespan to their careers or do most assume that they're going to have it's the a Brady it's the 20, latter. however many year run. It, it's the latter because that is the mentality that you have to have mm -hmm. in order to make it in this league. Only 250 people come into the league every year. That's it. We have 2,300 players. Only 250 come. Your mentality has to be this indestructibility. I'm he this, I'm, I'm going to be here forever. I'm going to have an outsized career. But the tough part is... On one side, I would argue that because we are America's sport and because our minimum salaries are so high, I mean, our minimum is $850,000. Our mean is 2.5, 2.6. When I go on a picket line, as I do about five, 10 times a year, I'm doing a picket line with hotel workers who are leaving, living paycheck to paycheck, or I'll do a picket line with nurses or teachers yeah. or in some cases public service workers yeah. when those people decide to go on strike they're going on strike for the most part in a tougher economic paradigm than mm. the paradigm my parents and your parents had they are literally for the most part making minimum wage and they don't know where the next job is but yet we've seen especially over the last two two to five years We've seen teachers walk out. We've seen nurses walk out. We were on a picket line for women who were making cakes for Coldstone two years ago. Mostly Hispanic workers in their 50s 
they went on strike for a dollar an hour raise. A dollar. It sounds like you're optimistic. Or maybe you're not. What is your feeling about the health of organized labor in the U.S.? I think it's growing. Okay. And I think it will grow over the next five years because I do think that we are headed for a bit of an economic reckoning. Yeah. Whether it'll be a, a, a small R recession or a bar recession, I don't know. Yeah. But what I've seen, and I sit on the executive council of the AFL, I've seen the largest strides in labor among predominantly women workers. And I think they have found themselves pushed as far as they can be mm-hmm. pushed. Had all I can take. It can't be much worse than it is. So you are seeing nurses and teachers, yeah. Yeah. but also interesting, our, I'll say it, our toughest sports unions the WNBA, the U.S. Women's National Team, the NWSL, I think those unions are far tougher than the men's unions. And it's an anomaly to me. The women in both of those ecosystems, economic ecosystems, whether it's sports and and the general sector, for the most part, the women are earning less for all of the obvious reasons, but they're willing to sacrifice more. The NFL's ability to withstand issues of a negative image yeah. are unrivaled. Okay. First, we didn't have free agency for until 1993. I have shoes older than 1993. We know that Colin Kaepernick was discriminated against and blackballed. Impact I'm, I'm, of the league. I frankly am glad zero. to hear you say that I'm, because I, of course it was. Impact of the league economically zero. The league tried to suppress the free speech of players who were kneeling before the game until we threatened to file a federal court action. And we've been operating under a standstill agreement for, what, six years now. Are you at liberty to tell our listeners whether you advise players to be to lean into social percent for two reasons. One, football is what we do. It's not who you are. Okay. No one should ever, I can't imagine a world where, and again, I have this sort of philosophical, sometimes turns into a real life argument with players. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I loved the firms that I, I worked for. Yeah. I can't imagine a world where I would populate my social media platform with me only wearing all of the logos from my law firms. So. A lawyer is what I do. I love the firms that I worked for. But conversely, I don't understand why our players spend so much time showing themselves and promoting team marks on their social Instagram feed. You don't get paid for it. You're doing public service for free for your team. They would say loyalty. So how did players react to the DeMar Hamlin? Yeah incident. It shook me right? yep. when I saw it. And then my final is this. Yep. I remember six or seven years ago, there was a player who was either drafted or about to be drafted who would come out yeah. with his sexual orientation. Yeah. And I remember thinking, holy expletive. And Michael Sam. Yeah. Yep. This is a big deal. Yep. And I've not heard much about it yep. since. Yeah. Are there discussions among the players in the league about the issue of orientation yep. and how it's going to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, look, the DeMar Hamlin situation, I, I think, affected us 
all yeah. and probably in different ways. I think the players live in a self-developed historical necessary frame of invincibility. And over the years, starting off with our deliberate aggressive action on the way in which concussions were treated. I will tell you that when I toured the teams in 2009 to talk about how Toradol and other painkillers were hurting us, hurting them, and really the way in which the league was addressing concussions reminded me of the way in which cigarette companies (laughs) address the issue of or the dangers of smoking. It was not popular in our locker rooms. Players didn't want to hear it. But I have public service. You have both a job where you respond to the the electorate and the democratic process, but that doesn't mean that you are absolved of leadership. And teaching players about the harms of concussions, teaching players about what painkillers do to their bodies, it was not popular, but it was utterly necessary. And by the way, look at where we are now. When I came in, there were no protocols. There were no concussion protocols. There were no sideline concussion experts. There, were no, there was little to no baseline testing. And now, if your kid is in junior high school, you probably have a baseline testing and you have a concussion protocol. And that's been great. But at some level, and I so appreciate your candor on this, you, these young men must have been signaling to you, D, the last thing I want to be reminded of is that football is dangerous because yeah. I got to go out and do it every day. And I get it. And I look at it as hopefully there isn't a soldier being asked to, to charge that hill who doesn't understand that they're putting their life on the line. That's a mature way of understanding it. You understand the risk and you do everything to mitigate the risk. So the only way that we could improve the safety in the league was confronting the players and absolutely tearing down this idea of invincibility. Because then we could bargain for better safety protocols, right? Yeah. And, we've, and we have, and that's been great. So it wasn't popular. It was 1,000% the right thing to do. When we get to Damar Hamlin, I think that one of the reasons why it hasn't been debilitating for players is our players do know that unlike 2009, 10, 6, 5, going backwards, they're confident that the best people are on the sidelines. Um, They know that we go through emergency testing procedures every year. And so the concussion protocols that we see on Sunday afternoons are not a dog and pony show. No, they're collectively bargained. And so I, I think that when, hopefully I think that what players know now is there are some things that we cannot control. But I do think that they believe that we have always been trending to a system that is far more safe than it used to be. There's been two moments in this job that that even though they may have been attended to with discourse or discord, I should probably say, one of my favorite times in this job, if not my favorite time, was when we were going through the anthem issue because I thought I thought for the for us that for a union you want you want your locker rooms to be together, right? You don't want things to And I can't imagine that it was harmonious. It was far more harmonious than you think. And I was so pleasantly surprised. So you spent all the time with these ideas. But we were going through Anthem, and one of the most telling moments was when our former president gave a speech 
think in South Carolina, where he said something like, shouldn't we get those sons of bees off the field? But I'm not sure he even understood that in our culture, when you called them sons of bees, you were calling their mothers. And that was a moment where we had several teams that were refusing to play on Sunday. And that's a problem because theoretically that could be interpreted as a strike. Mm-hmm. We have a no strike clause. Yeah, legal consequences. Legal consequences to that matter. So you had to remind you, you people got a of that. headache at that point. Had to remind people of that. Yeah. Love your passion, but let's yeah. play long here. But that time was a time where I don't care. And I went to all 32 teams that year. There wasn't a team in Discord. Not one. And, and I remember getting there and asking people, okay, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Let's. And what I got from team to team to team was, hey, D, man, we're cool. For the first time, we used to avoid these kind of conversations in the locker room because the locker room was, you could talk about anything else, but you didn't right. talk about race. Right. And you didn't talk about sex. Right, right, right. And you didn't talk about politics right. uh, or religion. But this, this forced that conversation. And I, my philosophical way of explaining it was, I think it was the first time that a group of people realized that you can't unfriend somebody in a locker room. On Twitter, you can say something crazy. You can unfriend the person. You can never hear from them again. And you go off on your merry way. You are having better conversations, more respectful conversations, even if you don't agree, in our locker rooms, because you can't do that in a locker room. Because tomorrow come right back in. I love it. Sit right next to the same guys. I don't have the explanation. I can only have theories. I think the beautiful thing about what happens in almost any sport, in almost any locker room, is a level of acceptance that you are a fellow human. And you may not agree, and we have, believe me, we have a large number of people on the right, and it's more than you would imagine. And we have a lot of people on the left. And But what doesn't occur is this overly hostile, demeaning, degrading, insulting conversation that you see play out in school board meetings right. and, and town halls. And that doesn't happen in our locker room. And I think that's literally, so what I've tried to tell people outside is, man, maybe this understanding that we are all inextricably tied, that our fates are inextricably tied, that I don't care whether you are living in small town in, in, in the South or the Midwest, man, when it comes to the major issues of our country, we are actually all living common fates. You may be able to go in your house and shut the door and pull down the blinds and believe that you aren't going to be subject to climate change or you are not going to be subject to the winds of change on on social issues or race issues or issues of gender. Just believe that the job of a collective union isn't to be comfortable. It's to be uncomfortable and to use your collective power to achieve those things. And like our constitution says, and it was written in the seventies, our constitution says 
that our job is to achieve the goals not yet attained, and you'll love this line, by all means necessary. Where does that come from? And I so like you asked me why I have James Baldwin on my, yeah. my pad. When I show up at a team meeting, now you know why guys are like, please, right. just can we just do football <laughs> games? Yeah, just... I love it. Man, what a pleasure. I know. This has been Man, great. Man, you're a tremendous interview. You make it easy. I don't know about that. Folks, if you're anything like me, you've had way too much fun just listening to my time with D. Smith. D, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Absolute pleasure. Good luck. Man. Keep doing oh, good please. work for well, the league well, and the and players. Thank you. And, man, you've been such a tremendous person, both privately and publicly. Obviously, people may not know the connection to to me and Albert. Right, you know, right. Uh, yeah, worked D, together. D and my brother worked together for a while. Long Prosecute, time. Prosecute a while. Cases, right. Long time. A, but a mere two, three years yeah, ago. Yeah, a couple right? years. A couple years ago. <laughs> back when we were 12. But yeah. you as a, as a public servant, I just don't think that there is, at least for professions, professional people, I don't think that there is a higher calling than public service. And I think people sometimes forget how tough that job is, how much it wears on your family, the decisions you have to make to forego a lot of other yeah. things. And just, and again, I can say this because I've been in this kind of high profile job for 15 years. Not a lot of people understand the personal toll. Yeah. It's hard. Fortunately, a lot of our listeners do because more often than not, the person in that chair has had some stint in public service. It's been one of the nicest surprises of my interview. And it's so rewarding. I get it. Right. Thank, Thank you, brother. Man, such a pleasure. Likewise. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.